your positive, positive, positive imprint. Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint, the variety show that features worldwide conversations with people whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Well, I was raised in a close-knit family with several siblings. Life growing up was spent in the outdoors camping, hiking, backpacking, and singing songs around the campfire. Oftentimes, we were the only ones in the wilderness except for the wildlife. Well, my parents were storytellers, and they told stories using nature. And it is from those stories that I learned about life. Today, my husband and I love being in the outdoors. We discover life lessons and everything that nature has to teach us. Well, today's guest also teaches life lessons. He is a storyteller whose stories are told from the lens of a camera and the stroke of a pen. Ian Scheib is a photographer, author, and film and television producer and director. He chronicles lives in our wild environments through forums such as Nature Conservancy, Sierra Club, National Parks Conservation Association, and a segment on Shark Week, and so many others. Well, Mike and I met Ian at the preview showing of his most recent works, Hidden Pacific. Ian will tell you more about that film as well as his many positive imprints. What's your PI? Ian Shive, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be here, Catherine. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you. And and it was just so amazing to have been able to meet you during the preview of your show, Hidden Pacific. Absolutely. Let, let's kind of start with storytelling. Mm-hmm. You You have this super way of telling stories through the camera lens. Did you grow up in the outdoors? Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started into all of this. It's kind of like we're just jumping right on in. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, great, that's a good place to start. I mean, story is the crux of anything that works well. Um, you know, a great image isn't just about the technical components of what make that image, but it's its ability to tell a story, which is why sometimes uh, you see very often, actually, you know, even in news, images that maybe aren't technically great. Maybe they're even a little blurry, a little soft, but they capture the moment, they tell a story, they illustrate. And so storytelling is really the foundation for all great visual work in my mind, whether it's a painting or a photograph or obviously movies. But um, for me, uh, storytelling is, is something I grew up around, probably even more so than nature, though nature was certainly an influential part of my childhood. My mother's a writer, my father's a photographer. And so, uh, you oh, know, you I, I, I sent both to... worlds. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I did. I did. I did. I had both worlds. And, you know, and of course, as, as many young people do, I figured, well, those are the, those are the two things I don't want to do, you know? So I pursued a different sort of path initially, not really realizing that that path was, was also very similar. I, I pursued, uh, uh, filmmaking, but I was, I was interested in the business side earlier on marketing and so on. But you know, I grew up in New Jersey, and so, you know, it's not the place people picture as sort of being, you know, the ideal outdoor place, but it is actually a very beautiful state. It is called the Garden State, and where we lived, um, we made the most of. You know, we had a park, uh, you know, there were ducks and turtles and fish, and, you know, we had animals that would come into our yard, and my, my parents really embraced that. And so, 
Um, you know, television and, and video games were not something I did a whole lot of, especially in my youngest years. And, and I think that sort of instilled this interest uh, in me. And then, you know, we didn't, we didn't have, you know, a lot of uh, resources to, to travel all the time either. So, you know, really making use of those urban environments were really important. But we did, um, as I got a little older, we took a trip when I was uh, 13 years old uh, or so to the Grand Canyon. And it was the first time I had ever gone west. And it's the first time I had ever really seen one of the great national parks. And that really just sort of changed my entire worldview in that moment of, wow, these things that you see in photos and magazines and TV or wherever are, are real. And they're even more spectacular in person than you could ever have imagined. So that was, that was really, I'd say, the most formative, formative part of my years, but also just sort of changed my, my worldview in a way that made me very curious about the natural world. For the Grand Canyon to have really opened up your mind and your view into this world of of telling stories, mm -hmm. of using nature, uh, and teaching life lessons, because that's something that's so crucial to what you're doing, and mm -hmm. and with your positive inference. But do you remember anything that maybe you might have said to your parents, or that you might have thought that was? That's a good question. You know, the I think the what I remember most actually is probably less the Grand Canyon itself and more the experience of getting there, the people we met, a lot of the smaller moments. Like I remember one moment, which was almost more transformative, I think, especially in hindsight, in Petrified Forest National Park. You know, so we kind of did like a driving tour of Arizona and the national parks and places, all outdoor places. And it was the first time I had seen a, an antelope and these rocks. And I remember just sort of being very, uh, very liberated by the experience. I remember getting out of the car and just sort of running yeah. <laughs> out, into, out into a field. And it was, I think I've been running since, to be honest. But it's, you know, I just remember those kinds of little things, those little experiences that really, I think, are the basis of stories. Because it's not, a great story is not always the destination, as we all uh, know. You know, a great story really is the journey. And I think it's that particular journey that really resonated the, the most with me. It's those moments in between. It's being in the car and looking out the window and seeing signs for things that conjure imagination and, and so on. I love what you just said and how you described it. A great story is the journey. And that that is so true because great stories are inspiring and they do take us places they take us from where we are at that moment of listening to the story and then to where we are taking a path someplace else mm -hmm. and with your background and just this great story in the journey that you were on how did that bring conservation into your life you were from new jersey you said you know you didn't do a lot of traveling how did conservation come into your life? How did you become this, and really worldwide renowned conservationist? Mm. Uh, you know, I, I think I'm still on that same journey, on that same trip. I began with my parents in many ways, and now what people see are just windows into my life along that journey, uh, whether it's a film or a, photo a photograph or a story, because when I'm not doing those things, I'm still looking for those stories. I'm still on those journeys. And, you know, I've really made it uh, my life to pursue those kinds of uh, experiences that I think, 
you know, I think nature is, uh, gives us a, a fundamental and foundational view into who we are. And I think that that's a big part of this journey that I'm on and that I try to share through my work. Um, conservation, I think, is an, a very organic feeling, uh, a very or, uh, natural piece of that experience. Because if you recognize that you are drawing from nature, and I draw from nature probably Oh, more than the most, the, the average person may think they do because I not only experience it as a person, but my career, you know, my own, uh, even my, my finances, right, come from from that. And so I, I physically draw from nature, both as a person who needs it, as well as somebody who has now, you know, changed his career and, and relies on uh, it for for my uh, my profession I think when you draw on something that you recognize the value of it, and you don't need to obviously be a professional who draws money from it, right? I mean, that's it's uh, not what I'm saying here, but what I'm saying is that you know, when you take from something, you realize that you should be giving back to, and that you hope other people can have that experience, that they can have those moments, those quiet moments in the woods, or you know, that experience as a 13-year-old, you know, in a in an, uh, completely untrammeled wilderness that sparks imagination because it, it it is, I think, again, very foundational for who we are to think of nature in that way. So, you know, I think that that's, that's sort of my perspective on this. And I think conservation really is, is an, is obviously become an urgent element. Um, and so there is a sense of urgency now as I get older and, and I see so much more of the world and some of these places that are so far removed from our everyday lives, still being impacted by our everyday lives, then you, your, your vision of these things starts to shift even more to not only just giving back, but a sense of responsibility. You are giving back, but your messages in the films that you do, at mm -hmm. least the ones that I've seen, are very clear. Mm -hmm. you're, you're this phenomenal photographer, nature photographer. There's a a sense of, and you mentioned it in what you were saying, there's a sense of responsibility mm -hmm. uh, within nature, when we're in nature. So talk about the photography and what you feel when you're out there as to what really is going to make that, what you think is the best way to capture a moment or an emotion. Well, I think any way that brings you joy is the best way to capture it. I don't think you need to dedicate your whole life to the profession and art of it. Uh, I think there's a wonderful component to add a layer on top of the, na the natural world experience. So for me, you know, going out and sitting along quiet pond, that's great. But it's also fun and exciting to have a goal and to look for new ways to show the world. And that's why I got so interested in photography. It, it, it really was less about the art of taking the image and more about the act of sharing an experience. And that was the reason I started uh, actively pursuing photography and was in large part because my friends back home in New Jersey didn't have the experiences I started to have. And especially as I got older, you know, I wanted a way to share that with them. And this was the way to share this with them, photographs, to say, look at this bear, or look at this mountain or the sunset. And, you know, at first the photos I, I took didn't uh, rep represent the experience as well as I remember <laughs> having it. 
you know? So it's like that, that automatically became the goal. Let's get better. You know, let me get better and try and improve my images so that they reflect the experience. And so that's where I think my work really sort of pivoted from being technical to what you uh, first brought up in the beginning of this, which is storytelling. But it, it also became about emotion. And a big component of storytelling is capturing emotion, exhilaration, mm -hmm. strength, courage, fear, all of those things that may exist in nature in, in a very uh, simple form. Often, you know, when you look at you know, raging waters or a waterfall, it's mesmerizing, but powerful and, you know, a storm or wind or, you know, somebody having a, an incredible moment where the wind is blowing through their hair and the light's coming through and they're looking out over a river or, you know, those are, those are emotional elements that exist in a photo and are obviously much, uh, I think, easier to convey in a film uh, because of the four-dimensional aspect of storytelling there. You're no longer just looking at a, only a visual, but you're hearing sounds and music and voices and narration and lots of different elements that are sort of coming together there. So, you know, I, I think that's a big part of how I got on that path. But I also think that, you know, the, the educational component of photography, which you mentioned, is very important to me, not just because it's education in its pure sense. I think education brought like very broadly as a term. So not just photography, but education about the environment, too. So learning about the subject matter and understanding it, uh, you can't just go to a place and photograph something like in the Laysan Albatross. The more you spend time with these creatures and the more you understand their, their personalities and their affection for each other, that's what makes you a better photographer when making images of those things. Because you realize, if I, if I just walked up and knew nothing about them, I would just take a picture of a bird. I wouldn't really necessarily look or understand the moment. But after sitting in a field with them for 12 hours a day, quietly and watching them interact and raise their young and the amount of affection and love they have for each other, it really was something I wanted to make sure was conveyed in the photograph. And that became the story element, it became an emotional element, became an educational element because now we understand this is what these birds do, you know, and then it became part of, a, of, a, of the broader story for films and, and so on. So. You know, I think education and, and the act of you know, learning about how to take great photographs is more than just how to take a photograph, how to, quote unquote, push the button, which is a skill and is changing a lot with technology and becoming easier for people. But regardless of how easy the technical pieces get, the uh, storytelling pieces will always be somewhat elusive and fleeting. And it's the ability to recognize those and capture those that makes a photographer a photographer. And so it's really a privilege to be able to, to bring that to people as an educator and share that knowledge with them and to share that perspective because then they go out and do the same. And to collectively, we begin to understand our world better. I think what you're doing is absolutely remarkable. And you have a talent. Not everybody has that talent for the storytelling that you do provide for us and through that your conservation obviously is the biggest message that does come forth uh, with your movie making and your photos such as your peaceful demeanor when you're with these albatross and that you are just there to 
look at them and to be that peaceful observer. So, and a connector. Yes. You know, I see myself as a connector I, cause, because a lot of these opportunities are very one of a kind. And sure, going yes. to a place like <laughs> Midway Atoll, especially now at this point in my career where I've really been given the ultimate privileges to travel to some of the farthest places where few people, if any, have ever gone before. And so now that role is not simply just sharing the Grand Canyon, but now it's connecting people to places they may otherwise never get to see and never get to understand. And so the stakes are now higher because you're not just capturing something or just telling a story. You're now educating them on a very important piece of our planet and our collective story as a people. Uh, and I take that very seriously. And so I think being that connection point is, uh, is a privilege uh, that comes with a lot of responsibility. And I think that that's where I kind of want to move on to because you're part of the political platform that exists today. So your connection and you bringing that connection to people is, it's for me, when I was watching Hidden Pacific, it wasn't just about the fact that I will never get to that place and I can see this beauty with the connection you're providing, but it's also providing people with as we were talking about earlier, that education of conservation. And we need mm -hmm. two things to protect what you are connecting us with. So mm -hmm. you're not only being that storyteller, and you mentioned that huge responsibility. And yes, Ian, you do have a huge responsibility because mm -hmm. you do have to tell the story from nature's point of view. And... Mm -hmm. That is a phenomenal talent that you do have, and that connection is there. I felt it, and it was a very emotional movie for both my husband and myself. Thank because, you. Thank you so much. Oh, it was incredible. We've been snorkeling all over, well, different places, especially in the Hawaiian Islands, and mm -hmm. we don't see what you saw in this extreme, pristine area. And our hope is not to ever be able to snorkel there one day. Our hope is actually to go over there and be able to volunteer mm -hmm. because that was one of the messages you brought out was volunteering to help with conservation. And, mm -hmm. you know, we've got these fires in Australia and it's like, you know. <clears throat> and you see the volunteers and how, and how important they are to that story. I mean, that's what's happening there is obviously just horrific. It is. And, and one thing I want to say, too, is, is, you know, the use of the word pristine is, is a tricky one today because it's it's of it's the most because the place is the most pristine. It, but that doesn't mean it's pristine. <laughs> you know, there, there there's almost nowhere left yeah, on Earth that we haven't touched in some way. And so, you know, that's I, I just wanted to make that that clarification because it's I want I think it's important for people to know that these places do exist and that they are critically important baselines to our understanding of the ocean and the planet. But even there, you know, there's impact uh, regardless of, uh, of how much of a footprint we have uh, in a physical sense or not, because it, everything floats out there. So one of the things that was truly, truly magical in the sense of you're being filled with with this absolute wonderful emotion and then suddenly you're hit with 
the the absolute fact that oh my gosh this place which looked so untouched when you started it with this film mm -hmm. and then you show the beaches and the ocean with all of that trash that we have placed there it, well, what's amazing is that trash is our past so a lot of that stuff that's washing up are you know you'll see figurines washing up for you know movies and toys and things that haven't existed in 40 years and so it, it's it's like my childhood is washing up on those beaches isn't that something and you know that is also uh, <clears throat> i mean that's a, it's an eye-opener but you know, and, and I appreciate what you say, because the, the film, the goal of this particular film, too, is, you know, there is so much bad news about the environment, well, in general, <laughs> yeah. but especially about the environment. And, you know, it, I wanted to create something that also showed that there is a lot of hope, that there's a reason to feel inspired, there's a reason to care, there's a reason to take action. And so, you know, unlike a lot of other films these days about the environment, which are very focused on or predominantly focused on the struggles that nature are having, I want my voice in this greater environmental story to be one of hope and inspiration and knowledge, while not ignoring the challenges. But, you know, I want people to still feel that there is a lot that can be done because there can be, you know, there is a lot to be done. And there is a lot to be thankful for, and there's still a lot of beauty and, you know, magical wildernesses that are out there. So this film really focuses, as, as, as you know, because you saw it, predominantly on the good stuff, you know, the history, the education, and the stories that are, you know, that are taking place every day out on those uh, atolls and in, and in those oceans. But, uh, but yeah, but it, it would be remiss to not talk about what they're up against. Well, your voice definitely inspires me. Can you talk now a little bit about, a little bit more about Hidden Pacific, whatever you're comfortable sharing, because I know it's it's out there, it's available, and you also have the teacher's piece to it, and also tandem stills and motion. Yeah. So oh, sure. you've got yeah. your, your company. Can you talk about Yeah. Yeah, so so we produce the film. So my company is, is Tandem Stills in Motion. We're based here in Los Angeles, uh, California, and we began the film about three years ago, uh, which is hard to believe. And it took about two and a half years to bring it to the screen. Uh, for people who are you know, interested in, in seeing more about the film, seeing photos, the trailer, where it's playing and all that, we're keeping it up to date on our website, which is hiddenpacific.com. And it, it's rolling out. So it's, it's going in and it's in, I think, oh, it's already left, I think, four theaters or so. But it, because it's at museum cinemas and in IMAX 3D, it, it, it is sort of a staggered rollout. And so it's in approximately 20-some cities right now, 26 cities, I think, now. It's starting to go overseas. So it just opened uh, at the National Museum in Taiwan. It's in Canada and Victoria. It'll be down in Mexico City. So it's it's great to see it starting to spread around around the world because it's Really, the film, the reason that this film exists and should exist is because no one has ever seen these places before, certainly in a professional capacity. You know, there's some government officials who've been out there, you know, scientists, biologists, and so on. But these are uninhabited islands. There's, and, and many people don't know that we, these are part of the United States. They're a thousand miles from Hawaii, you know, in the middle of the most remote part of the Pacific Ocean, which is the largest feature on Earth. 
So they're some of the most remote and most difficult islands to get to, and they are protected as part of our marine national monuments. And we've been hearing a lot about national monuments in the news and places like Bears Ears and Utah mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. people can visit. And, and one thing that I've had a real problem with is how you know, the outdoor recreation industry has really embraced the Bears Ears story and let's open it to uh, gas and oil exploration and everything else. But there are also marine monuments facing a lot of those same challenges and people don't know what they are. And they don't know, and they and they don't and they don't care because they don't know what they are. They don't. People hear something and they say, "Well, I, I can go, I can drive to Bears Ears, and you know, they get you get these outdoor brands that are, you know, publicizing it and you know, saying all these things about uh, why it's important. We take action and let our leaders know and all this other stuff. But you weren't really seeing any of that about the marine areas. And there's five of them. There's four in the Pacific, one in the Atlantic. And so this film is very important because it's, you can't drive to these places. You can't fly to these places. You, if you take a boat, it's going to take, you know, weeks from Hawaii to get there. So, and even then they're closed to the public for their environmental protection because they're such small sensitive places. And this is the only way to see them. And this is the only way to understand it. And this is the only way to say, I now know what value these places hold to us as a country and as a, as, as a people around the planet. And so, you know, this is where film and photography and all of that, as I mentioned earlier, becomes that connector. It becomes that educator. And so this film uh, allows people to do it. It was very complicated, though. The process of making it was very complicated. It took, I think it was seven uh, expeditions. Wow. You know, we endured cyclones. Oh, my goodness. You know, very rough seas, <laughs> very, very low... Uh, you know, levels of resources in some places, you know, so we're have highly technical equipment to produce this beautiful film, but, you know, keeping it dry and protected and everything else was exceptionally challenging, but we managed to pull it off. And now people can see what Papahanao Makuakea Marine National Monument, one of the largest protected areas on earth looks like. They can now see what Rose Atoll, 185 miles east of American Samoa looks like. You know, they can see what the waters around Palmyra Atoll, which is part of Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument, look like. And what mantas and sharks and schools of fish and corals and birds and all these things that rely on these tiny, tiny little islands. I mean, the smallest of these islands we were on, I mean, some of them are as big as a rock. But, you know, some of the islands are no more than 16 acres around. And you can walk the whole island in 12 minutes. Uh But it's pivotal critical habitat for nesting sea turtles, for seabirds, the only place they can nest and lay eggs, you know, things like that. So it, it really, it really was a, just a phenomenal project, a, a true lifetime achievement uh, to, to have that opportunity for me. I'm very, very proud of the team that worked on it because it was a very large team that put this thing together in the end, you know, editors and musicians and, and uh, cinematographers and all of those pieces. So I'm thrilled and very proud that you guys were able to do this as well and to bring it to the audiences and to the forefront. And it's here at at our museum for a number of months, so I'll be able to see it over and over and over yeah. again, which I definitely yeah. look forward to. And yes. I, I'm going to go back and I want to see the monk seal because I... I, my husband elbowed me and he said, did you see the monk seal amongst the turtles? I said, no, I missed yeah. it. 
You, you'll like it. We have another film uh, that's actually available if you're if you have an Amazon Prime member, it's free, um, and you can just stream it. It's forty minutes, and it only explores Midway and uh, the Northwest Wine Islands. Um, it's it's called Midway Edge of Tomorrow, and it's on iTunes as well and other places. And the Monk Seal is is in that quite a bit. Uh, we were very fortunate that we had such intimate opportunities to film them. You know, they're endangered and rare and you're not allowed to approach them and all that and so but they they do sometimes approach you and so we were very lucky to have that uh opportunity to see those guys because they're they're pretty cool creatures you mentioned something earlier and now you're talking about the monk seals but something that you talked about which i think is so so true and not only true but it's a powerful message and and that is with within our photography you can't really grab and capture what you really want to unless you get to know the animal or unless you're there mm -hmm. watching the the sunset and just the reactions that nature has amongst each other and, and mm -hmm. how everything works. And so when we were down in Hawaii, we were way, way out. We, we love to just hike the beach and just go for miles. We were eating and suddenly a monk seal came up from nowhere and she just well she had her young right so she had her pup wow and we watched that mother teach her young how to swim mm -hmm. and that little one did not want to go out in the water it screamed <laughs> it yelled it barked and we have great pictures of mm. that young with its mouth open as it's cool. barking it, it was just you know, that experience and seeing <clears throat> such a young, and the umbilical cord still attached. Oh, wow. It, it was just, not to the mother, but, you know, to the young. Sure. Just incredible. That's pretty amazing. It, it was. I will never forget that. And the pictures mean so much more. Sure. After getting to know that young one. The saddest part is we went back, we, we frequent Hawaii. We went back uh, eight months later. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to go see how that young seal was. And of course, they just stayed with mom for three weeks. Mm -hmm. Well, doggone it. It was um, a wild dog, not a wild dog, a domestic dog pack. Uh. Yeah, they killed the the baby. So we were heartbroken. Mm. Heartbroken. But that's terrible. They, that, that's, that's the issue. I mean, and there's so few beaches. That's why these marine monuments are so important. There are so few beaches beaches that don't have you know lights make it difficult for turtles uh you know people as you just mentioned dog packs i mean there's all kinds of issues that these things face on what little beaches there are when you, there's there's so few actual miles of unencumbered beach that turtles and monk seals and creatures that rely on these places to nest there's just not much out there. There's not much available. And, and these marine monuments are some of the only areas that they can do that. You know, the Northwest uh, Pacific Islands are, are great because, our Northwest Hawaiian Islands, rather, are, are great because there's there's quite a number of, of beaches there that are all protected. You know, and the nice part is the, the one thing that's great about isolation is uh, it is sort of naturally protected to some to, to a great degree. I mean, that's why these places look and uh, are in as good a shape as they are. It's not just because of their protected status. Certainly that's a, a key layer, but also just the fact that they're far away from us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and it's, and that makes it great. You know, they're protected by remote isolation.
Yeah. And not to change from Hidden Pacific, but I saw that you also have done a, a segment for Sharks Week or for Shark Week. And you yeah, were out in. Episode. Yeah, full episode. Oh, um, full episode. The, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was an executive producer of uh, Sharks of Cuba, uh, Tiburones, the Sharks of Cuba, and for Discovery. Yeah, that was that was a, the first official. We don't get credited this way, but it was the first official uh, commercial film production since the embargo oh, to, my to go to Cuba. That would, you know, so we went legally with permission. Went through a very long uh, process. It was before uh, President Obama made his announcement to uh, normalize relations between the countries, and so we worked with the State Department and Treasury and the Cuban government to launch a joint expedition to the north and south coast of Cuba to uh, study shark populations. And so, you know, the, the work that the uh, Cuban scientists down there are doing uh, with the University of Havana and SIM, which is their CIM, which is their marine biology division, is just amazing. And so we had those folks, as well as um, uh, the Moat Marine Laboratory and the Environmental Defense Fund, uh, were all, uh, we were all kind of a team. And we all went down there and boarded boats and went around tagging sharks and putting satellite tags on. A lot of firsts were accomplished on that trip. A lot of new understanding of species of uh, mako sharks and, and uh, nursery grounds for uh, silkies and other kinds of sharks. It was just really, uh, that was a, another trip of a lifetime. I, I sort of, <laughs> you know, I, I started with national parks and these places that you can access, but somehow my <laughs> career has become uh, very highly specialized in the most difficult, uh, what I call expedition filmmaking, because they're, they're difficult from both a permission as well as a logistics standpoint. Um, and I kind of like that now because it, you, you get an opportunity to see something that you're not otherwise going to get to see and share Oh my gosh, absolutely. That, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pretty special, but it is also hard. <laughs> I will um, be glad to carry your camera around on your next <laughs> expedition filmmaking. You, you say that. This is, it, it sells very glamorously. It's a great conversation. You get to look at the products. It's very beautiful, but it is so hard. And it is so sometimes thankless. And it is, you know, there is an immense amount of sacrifice that goes into these kinds of things. I mean, you're not getting rich doing nature documentary filmmaking. You do it because it's a passion. You know, it's a very expensive endeavor. And it's, you know, you inevitably have equipment losses and long, brutal days and hot, salty water or cold, cold winds and rain. And I mean, it just, it, you know, you have to really love it. They always say, you know, the best documentary filmmaker is one with a short-term memory. <laughs> because it's like you keep wondering why you keep going back again. You know, it's, it's, it can be tough, but it is also, I mean, as I said, you know, repeatedly, it's, it's a privilege to, to see those places. But yes, the Cuba Project, I'm very, very proud of. It's already been four years. They re-air it almost every year. Uh, they have actually re-aired it every year, twice during Shark Week on Discovery. And I don't know the actual reach of the audience, but I know in the initial run, we were somewhere around you know 35 million people or so saw it in its initial That's run. Great. And it's run for three years since. So it's you know, how many viewers have seen it is, is, is tremendous. You know, think about that stage, you know, that opportunity to share that with people is pretty, uh, that's a pretty big stage to be on. So it's pretty great. 
Absolutely. And how did, what made you decide to do sharks? Was it, did they <laughs> ask you or was, did you meet somebody? It just sort of naturally came about. So I had already been to Cuba as part of a, an educational trip uh, with some environmental nonprofits. So I was there to observe and take pictures and, and essentially all of us were, uh, what the environment was. This was probably uh, a year and a half, almost two years before we even started making the show. <clears throat> so this was already quite a while ago, six or seven years ago. And while I was there, you know, it was the, the intent of the trip was to look at marine resources. And I was working with the Nature Conservancy at that time and um, as, a, as a photographer for them. And so on that trip, uh, the marine resources that we're looking at, I've really loved being in the ocean and photographing marine environments has been a real passion of mine, coral and sharks and all the other things that live in the sea. And so um, on that trip, we just saw a tremendous amount of sharks. I mean, it was unbelievable, multiple species, healthy ecosystem. And similar to sort of the isolation that exists in the atolls of the Pacific, Cuba uh, similarly has had an isolation, but it's political isolation. And that political isolation has resulted in a lot of things that have been uh, very good for the environment, maybe not so good for, you know, the, the people all the time. And, you know, that's for other folks to discuss and decide. But from the environmental perspective, you know, they haven't had long line trawling. They haven't had the heavy use of pesticides. A lot of their practices of farming uh, in the country and things like that have been the practices that were of, you know, the 1950s and 60s pre-embargo. Therefore, their environment uh, tends to be some of the best examples of what the Caribbean looks like. It is probably the best, one of the best examples of the Caribbean. Not to mention that, you know, the leadership there, Castro, uh, ha was an uh, avid uh, diver and also uh, very much into conservation. The country and the people are very much into conservation. So they've had a very large percentage of their environmental resources protected which is, you know, not something people think of or know uh, about the country. And so it, it really just was perfectly poised for us to go and understand what that looked like and to share it with the world. And so on that first trip, you know, we, we kind of had this idea, I saw the sharks, and then I've been trying to move my own career in storytelling forward in television and film. And so I was in the room with Discovery and mentioned it and they took an interest in it and then that sort of began the development process of that show that is so incredible yeah it's pretty amazing right <laughs> it is and how you know that just goes to show you that when when you are just experiencing something in a minute sense such as you know, you're just going out there to check out the resources and so on mm -hmm. how things can actually grow from there and and what you're able to accomplish and achieve and Wow, that thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was it was great. With all of the the experiences that you've had, do you have any one or two experiences that have just left you with such wonderful dreams at night forever, eternally? <laughs> if I <laughs> fall asleep, I'm not dreaming about a whole lot. I'm I'm very grateful just to get a good night's sleep these days. But <laughs> the um you know, that's hard to answer. I, I've been so fortunate uh, to have such an incredible life and to have so many transformative sure. experiences. I, I do feel, uh, you know, I've been to all 50 states. 
I've been to probably almost all of the territories. I haven't had the opportunity to get to Puerto Rico yet. Um, I'd really like to go. But, you know, and now having traveled so much on assignment and as a filmmaker, and, you know, it's not just traveling. You know, I'm not just getting on a boat and taking pictures like I'm on a holiday cruise. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having opportunities to meet the people on the ground and learn how their careers have changed from forester to conservationist, from, you know, cowboy to protector of a, of a, of a, a land or, you know, how education has, has changed or played roles in conservation. And so I've really gotten this education. I've been educated, I would say, across the board. And I think the greatest thing I feel is that I have an unprecedented view and understanding of our public lands and waters in the United States that I think very few people have had the, the, the opportunity to, to see and do, and especially over such a long period of time. You know, I began this path about 14 years ago uh, after having a, a career, you know, in the movie industry and on the, on the desk side of it, not the filmmaking side of it. And so I think that that's probably the thing that sticks with me the most is, wow, don't take that for granted. You understand why places are protected. You understand why places maybe aren't, which is, is equally important to understand you know, how, how that transformation happens into industry and commercialization, the role of commercialization in protecting the environment, you know, the, the, the relationship between the private and public sectors. You know, I think that all of that, it's, it's more than just understanding where a turtle crawls up onto a beach and why, but all of the administrative processes that exist around it is something I often find myself thinking about and trying to determine and, and figure out, you know, if, if there's a greater role down the road for me in that conversation, or if, if this is the most impact I can have is as a filmmaker, you know, I'm not, I'm not really sure, but there's been just such a long list of great moments. Like you said, the, the albatross and going to the islands and jumping into the water and seeing coral that no one has ever seen before ever and having opportunity to photograph it. Um, you know, you're just, your mind drifts in different ways and different days, <laughs> you know, to, to different experiences, but you know, and I've also had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in Alaska recently. And so, you know, that's been very fresh on my mind, too. Uh, you know, really starting to see, you know, completely different environments and, and, uh, and uh, you know, than the Pacific. A little colder, too. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. I always joke that Hidden Pacific and, and the Cuba and every, actually all those things for many years that I was creating i'm pretty sure i made all of those barefoot <laughs> you know and all those films where now it's uh you know it's it's been big heavy jackets and boots and, <laughs> and warm socks and staying dry is is the key versus there where it was the exact opposite so anyway and so will you be going back up to alaska i've been working on a project up there i can't quite talk too much about but i've been working up there for the last uh, year or so and we've finished the, the shooting part of it, but we will be you know, going back to, to share some of those results with our partners on the project and promote it. And, and Alaska, I think, in general, is going to probably continue to play a very important role in uh, my filmmaking and photography down the road. Well, Alaska is a fabulous place. I used to live there, and we try to get up there as much as we can. And I look forward to that project. And whenever that will be released. And then another 
question just because I'm curious because I'm such an a very emotional person when it comes to the environment and when it comes to wildlife. And is there any particular animal that was just so hard for you to leave and you just hope I know that all the animals that you've ever come in contact with you hope the best for them and that they're still surviving and that Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I actually think the albatross is one of those. I think that's probably been one of the more transformative species for me as a person, because I wasn't really a bird person before, you know, like I never quite uh-huh. got burgers a hundred percent. I was like, wow, you know, you've seen the, you know, whatever species or whatever. And I don't think I really appreciated the complexity of them and how special and unique and specialized a lot of them are. And you know, and the albatross are they're quite large. The Laysan albatross, which live out on Midway, I think it's more than half the world's population nests on Midway itself. And so, you know, you there's a bird every three feet. <clears throat> and, you know, you walk. I mean, if you only way to move around the islands on golf carts, then you have to frequently get out and move, a, you know, pick a bird up and set it aside. And they teach you how to do all that, uh, you know, when you get there uh, with the researchers and stuff. And but I think, you know, watching them and seeing, you know, they're monogamous, they mate for life. You know, the oldest bird, uh, Wisdom, I think she's either 68 or 69 years old now and still giving birth. Wow. And she's had a few different mates over the years. You know, they haven't, they haven't made it, but they only, uh, they only move on from their relationship when the other uh, passes away. And so... But seeing the affection that they have and the long lives that they have and then, you know, seeing how smart and curious they are and sitting in a field where they, you know, they often walk up and try and pull my zipper or, you know, like on my jacket or, you know, try and like look at the lens kind of funny or, you know, as you walk by, they kind of clap their beaks, but they don't move. They just sit, you know, on their nests as the, as the youthful things. And they just made me happy and they just, you know, were just beautiful creatures and so <clears throat> I started looking at that in other birds and I've done a lot with seabirds over the years now and you know and sharks and mantas and all that get a lot of uh, you know credit for their charisma but I, I think birds are fascinating and interesting and uh, I think that the Laysan albatross is the one that was the hardest to to leave that colony I, I hope at some point in my life I get the opportunity to go back just one more time for a few days and just sit out there and and see the albatross. That's so inspiring when you talk about it, when we hear the professional talk about (laughs) it, that that it's meaningful for you and that you want to go back and see them. You know, I want to go back and see the monk seal. And I, on my podcast, I had a gal, her name is Lisa, Lisa Mm. Highwood from Africa. Mm -hmm. She runs the Tiki Highwood Mm. Foundation. And she said that she really wants to save and conserve and protect all animals, but the non-charismatic ones, because they don't get the <laughs> the, the yeah. foundations and the funding that they do. So she is really helping with the pangolin. Oh, cool. And yeah, so <clears throat> now I, I really want to go to Africa and yeah. go see a pangolin. I would love now. to see a pangolin. <laughs> so, <laughs> I really yeah. love to see a penguin. They're yeah. very cool looking creatures. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know much about them. I've been mostly my 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 own career has been mostly here in the United States. I've definitely you know, but I've gone to all the parts that no one's heard of or that most people don't even realize are part of the United States. But 
you know, Africa is, you know, just a mesmerizing place. And obviously Australia is, you know, so, so gorgeous. And that's another place I have yet to go to and to see the, the news, you know, like, I, you know, I, and that's why I think like in Pacific, for instance, is so important in films and, and are so important about the environment right now, because we, we have to know why they're worth protecting and seeing what's happening in Australia is a great example of, of, of that and the time for us to stop and think about why we need to protect places and to see like poor Australia, I mean, between the great barrier reef and now these fires, uh, it's just devastating. I mean, what is it? Half of their, half of the coral and the great barrier reef has died. And now, you know, a billion animals have been lost in wildfires. I mean, this is, this is a crisis and yeah, we're living through it. So it's, it's, uh, it's a time to refocus, I think, on all of those things, because the less charismatic creatures, you know, everybody's talking about the koalas and the kangaroos, but there's the pangolins and the albatross and the, you know, the lizards and turtles and all the other little things that are part of the whole ensemble that make this place livable. So, uh, you know, we need to really think about that. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you really would like to share, whether it be about yourself or about your movie company? Or about the future, the past? Um, well, I mean, I'd like to just, one thing I meant to ask, and you actually touched on it briefly, or, or one thing I meant to, uh, to mention is that on our website for the movie, there's also a free 80-page educational curriculum, an education guide. So that's where I think, you know, filmmakers and photographers have to go a layer deeper and not just take the picture or produce the movie, but provide the resources for outreach and tools for education. And so, you know, on this film, uh, we partnered. And that's Hidden Pacific. <clears throat> Hidden Pacific, yes. We created uh, with the Pacific Science Center in Seattle uh, and um, our uh, film distributor, Giant Screen Films, and Tandem, as well as our uh, partner in filming, which is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in the National Wildlife Refuge System, who, um, you know, they're managing those monuments that we've been filming on, we all together collectively uh, put together and, and vetted this 80-page education guide. And it is such a great resource for uh, young people, 8 through 12. Uh, but, I mean, it really is. It's a great resource for anybody because if you don't know what a marine monument is or how coral gets bleached or, you know, different parts of a shark, it's, it's all in there. But you can just download it. It's a PDF. And it's so well done. And it's a great thing if you're going to go see the movie or maybe you've already seen the movie, you can pull a page out of it in a classroom and, uh, and teach something. And, you know, I just I think it's such a great resource and very important for, uh, for work in the future. And that's something that in general I'm looking at for the future, too, is, you know, can our other projects, you know, maybe they're not always going to be 80 pages, but can we have some sort of takeaway that is, you know, an educational uh component to the visual component. That's awesome. And and so listeners can pick that up from hiddenpacific.com. That's correct. I'm excited yep. to use that. I'm going to be in the classroom with some teachers later on this week, so I can certainly oh, talk about this and the field trips that we have that we can do here uh, where oh, Hidden great. Pacific is showing at the IMAX here at the Museum of Natural History. I, I really love where you're taking your work and that you're you're seeing it as this is our future this is what we want to protect this is what we want to conserve here's why you know i hope that people find you know our work you know inspirational and i hope that they connect with it and enjoy it and 
you know, I hope that they, they share the word, you know, spread the word because it really does take a lot to, to do these things. And we really rely on, on the public to help uh, spread the message. And, and, you know, thank you for having me on your podcast. Cause I think every little bit makes a big difference uh, in, in getting people to, to better understand our natural world and especially these, these far off places. We have a lot of great information and resources as well on our company website, which I think would be great for, for folks to see. It's uh, tandemstillsmotion.com. It's like tandem bicycles. T-A-N-D-E-M-S-T-I-L-L-S. That's right, motion.com. Tandemstillsmotion.com. We've got a great news section. And, you know, in, in, you know the, the company I started is more than, you know, I just want to really give a shout out to the, to the team because, you know, it's more than just me. So we have, you know, our, uh, you know, our lead editor who takes all of these beautiful visuals. His name is Ian as well. Takes all of these beautiful visuals and is a story. He's a storyteller. I mean, he has to take it and figure out how does this work with the script and crafting stories out of, you know, hundreds of hours of footage. You know, which was one of the greatest challenges of the film. But we also have, you know, a photo team with, uh, you know, Kendall and Eric and everything. And so we actually have over 300 photographers that work in the environment that are part of our team. And and so we, we have lots of different ways that we reach different groups of people about different issues. So we just recently published uh, a new book called Silent Kingdom that is mostly photographed in the waters around Mexico. Oh, and wow. this incredibly talented photographer, Christian Vizel, it's won lots of awards. It's a gorgeous book. But, you know, I think a lot of people don't think of that, you know, especially with, you know, a lot of the conversation with Mexico being taken up around immigration issues. We don't sometimes we forget about the environmental issues. And so, you know, this is a great reminder of that. You know, we've got some national parks books and things like that as well and different ways for people to interact. You know, and, and that's been really important, you know, but we, we have an incredible team. It takes a lot of people to do these movies and to make these stories. And, and it's hard, you know, it's definitely it's a hard world and, and living these days as photographers, especially. I think it's getting harder and harder for them to, to make a living. And so, you know, our company has really worked very hard to make sure that these outdoor you know, photographers have some sort of base that they can count on, support system that they can count on as they go around telling these important stories. So, you know, that's, that's something I hope that, that folks will check out and, and, you know, consider and look at. But yeah, the, the official page is sort of houses everything from Hidden Pacific to photography is tandem stills motion. But hiddenpacific.com also is a great resource. I think every little bit makes a difference. I don't think any contribution is too small when it comes to making the world a better place. And it's more than just the environment. I think it has to be our relationships with each other. And I think in general, you know, I just, it just seems like we really need to take a step back. You know, I mean, we're talking about movies and photography and technology and, you know, all this other stuff. But really at the end of the day, I think we have to take an assessment of what's important to us. And, you know, and I think just being uh, better to each other and better to the environment is going to just result in a place that is, you know, wonderful to live in and be a part of. And I think that when it comes to the environment, we all need to think about what role we are playing in that. And having a responsibility and recognizing that we do have a responsibility, an absolute responsibility, to, to really become uh, active in conservation. 
and you know knowing what that means and a lot of people ask me and they say well what can I do you know I live in a town I don't get to travel I don't really I'm not interested in photography or maybe don't have the means to really start or pursuing that you know what can I do and it's it's every little bit you know I think reducing our footprint and you know simplifying our lives is probably the most important thing we can do but there's lots of great resources out there and organizations doing good work and I think no matter what it is, you know, even like you said, even the pangolin, you know, even if you're like, well, I'm passionate about pangolins, you know, there's an organization out there that's working for them. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot of ways that people can become involved, but I think we have to become involved. Ian Shive, wow, you so much inspire me and you have such phenomenal positive imprints. And thank you for showing what we need to be protecting. And to learn more about Ian, you can go to tandemstillsmotion.com. Ian, thank you so much for joining Your Positive Imprint. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I appreciate it. And thank you for spreading this important message uh, around the world through your audience. Oh, absolutely. To learn more about Ian Shive and Hidden Pacific Film, visit hiddenpacific.com. Also, to learn more about Ian's other works, visit tandemstillsmotion.com. Well, thank you so much for listening to this free podcast. To keep it free, please sign up for podcast updates on my website and listen to episodes on my website at yourpositiveimprint.com or download my episodes by hitting subscribe or the follow button on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or other podcast platforms. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. My mission is to bring the world of positive imprints like Ian Shive to you and to inspire you to find your own positive imprints. Music by Chris Knoll. His music may be found at chrisknoll.com. I appreciate all of you for listening and supporting my variety show podcast. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?